Welcome to the Since Graduation Podcast. My name is Calvin Van Leeuwen, and I am joined by my co-host and noted special weapons expert, Emmanuel David. <laughs> How you doing? Oh, thanks, Calvin. You really had to start with that. How's your hand doing? Um, my hand's doing all right. It's 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 recovering well. Yeah, doesn't hurt anymore. I think I need to explain it because if you try and explain it, it will get twisted. So what happened was I got a airsoft gun about, I'd say, two weeks ago, and it wasn't shooting straight. So I was doing a bunch of adjustments, and finally I was, um, like, we were getting it pretty close. Update, it's actually not at all close, and we're going to replace it, but... I was adjusting this thing called the hop-up, which basically is a little notch, I guess, that comes down and it gives a, a BB backspin. Um, so the thing is, if you can imagine it, if it's too loose, then there's nothing touching the BB and holding it back from rolling out of the barrel. So I was like, I started it with it completely loose and I was adjusting it. Um, and the bullets kept fall falling out, obviously. And eventually, <laughs> um, I reached a point where it did click. But in order for me to, for the BBs not to fall on the ground and me lose them, I put my hand on the end of the barrel and caught the BBs to save them. Um, and the, the first time that I did this happened to be the time that the hop-up was exactly correct. And my pinky, I guess, happened to also be on the trigger, which was without the safety on. And um, <laughs> I basically shot myself with, like, I think it's a 400 FPS um, <laughs> airsoft sniper rifle <laughs> at point-blank range with my hand on the end of the barrel. And uh, I got a nice wound. Yeah, that was a very long and flowery way to say he shot himself in the hand by putting his hand over the barrel <laughs> and then well, pulling yeah. the trigger. <laughs> With, like, heavy qualifications, which are very important to mention. No, I think you're rationalizing. I think I think this is a very clear story, and you're you're really trying to make yourself the underdog in this situation, and... I just think you shot yourself in the hand. Yeah, I told everyone else I caught a bullet. And I felt like Superman. Hold up for a second. That is an A-plus explanation. Bravo on that front. Thank you. Because, like, I did have the bullet by the end of it. I think I dropped it after because I <laughs> was shaking my hand. But I did have the bullet. You didn't exactly catch the bullet, but your flesh caught the bullet. Yeah. That's better in it. The bullet was caught by my hand. So last episode, we decided that we would do this exercise where we track every minute of a certain day. Now, this was last Monday. We said that we'd meet on Tuesday to talk about it. And this is the following Tuesday as opposed to the next day. But regardless, Calvin and I both did it. And 
I think we found some pretty interesting results. So how did yours go, Calvin? Well, first of all, that was a graceful segue from your uh, shame. But it's changing the topic. Don't worry, I'll I'll bring it back up. Yeah, so we both tracked everything we were doing on Monday, and we have a whole lot of information. Brief overview. We just before we started recording, we divided uh, our day, our our data into four different segments, f- into four different categories. There was prep time, which is work that is sort of tangentially related to the actual work. Um, so for me, that was prepping canvases and looking for reference material, that kind of stuff. Uh, for Manuel, it was... I just counted that as the time I spent scheduling and different things, including like tracking my minutes, much less than what you kind of put it as. Yeah, it's a more important category for me. Um, for And then our second category was work. So for me, painting, Emmanuel, whatever he's doing these days... There's a third category, uh, which we called waste, um, which was time we were just distracted. Um, And then a fourth category, which was other, which was necessary chores, eating, that kind of thing. So brief overview, what are your reactions to, to seeing this data? So this was a very abnormal day because... First of all, I had a lot to do and a lot planned already, which made it a great model day to track. But it also meant that I didn't have as much distraction or time for distraction as I would have on a normal day. And also the fact that I was tracking literally every minute meant that I was much more careful with how I spent my time, I think. Yeah, I think recording definitely influenced our our patterns. Our, our habits with time. So for a brief overview uh, in the four different categories, I had two and a half hours of prep time, five hours of work, so drawing or painting, one and a half hours of wasted, distracted time, and five hours of other. Yeah, so for me, it was 36 minutes of prep time because that was a much smaller category. Um, six uh, and a half hours of work time 29 minutes of distraction, wasted time, and six hours and two minutes of other. Before we go, do you have any highlights from your list of things you did that day? Oh, yeah, that is a good one. Um, I, so I literally wrote down, if I did something for 30 seconds, it counted as what I did for that full minute. So at 11.49, I washed out a pen it was a calligraphy pen, so I washed out the nib. At, um, let me see. <laughs> this one's funny. At um, between 9.10 and 9.24, I was fixing the airsoft gun. That is not when I shot myself, but that happened. I had a one-minute bathroom break at 7.16. Yeah. For me, I spent 20 minutes at 7.30 trying to get my frickin' printer to work. That's an exact quote. Um, and at 6.45, I spent five minutes, quote, failing to find a snack. So those are, those are some of my highlights. It was, it was a day. Yeah. So I think that, so what I did this on that day is I also very strictly planned my schedule. 
to see how well I could keep one. So I like, I think every half an hour, I like set up what I wanted to do. And I, I kept it more or less. Like I had to extend some of the times, like for example, we were cleaning out a room and I thought it would take an hour and a half, but it took like two hours. So I, I, I left some buffer, but I had to extend that quite a bit. Um, and so like my plan did move around a little bit, but I think overall, partially because I was, I wanted to keep it really badly because I wanted to see how well I could do it. I kept it pretty well. So I think in anything when you, what's that principle? Do you know that principle when like when you observe something? No, 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 no. When you observe something, like you inherently change it. Oh, it's like a quantum mechanics thing. Yeah, like by observing it, it becomes different. Anyway, that's a distraction. But basically, I think by tracking my minutes, I heavily changed what I actually did. I'm normally distracted for more than 29 minutes on a average day. Oh, I was definitely distracted for more than 29 minutes, even on that day. Um, well, okay. So in my waste category, there are like two big chunks. The first mm -hmm. is an intentional break that I take every day during lunch. Mm -hmm. um, so I take a one hour break to make lunch and to watch a show or something because I need to give myself a little bit of a, of a break. Wait, I have a question. Yes. Did you put that in the distraction category? I did. Oh, then I need to add another because I too took like a 40 minute break. So that just went up to, I can take off that time from both. So I, I did, I was distracted during lunch. Yes. Yeah. So I put the time that I was making lunch into the other category, but the, the time afterwards when I was just, uh, slowly eating my food and watching Disney plus, I think I put that. Yeah. I put that into my, my waste category, but it's it's not exactly waste, right? So I think I think I'm relatively happy with this distribution of of times. I think the the most interesting thing that I found while I was looking over the, all this data was that I'm very effective at just hunkering down and doing an activity for a long period of time. Like, when I was painting, I could just paint for three hours, maybe with, like, a break to change my podcast or something, but essentially for three hours just painting, um, and I could do that multiple times a day. Like, I was really good at that. Um, but where I started to falter a lot was transitioning between things. So, like, after dinner, when I was trying to find something to do, that was when a lot of these different, a lot of the the actually wasted time happened because I was sort of just moseying around trying to think of something to do. Yeah, I completely agree because I think the reason this day was so successful is because I had like a nine point to-do list. I actually didn't complete it. I I think it was like sending you like the podcast edit or something is the one thing I missed, but um, which is ironic. But <laughs> like, I think the fact that I had too much to do 
in the day meant that like I was not as distracted as a day where I kind of just say I have stuff to do and then every break I get I like check my phone because <laughs> why not um because I'm trying to remember what I need to do next so I think that this showed me that a schedule does work yeah something I was really impressed by myself about was my ability to adapt so in an earlier podcast I had mentioned that the structure of my days is supposed to be a three-hour painting block in the morning and another long painting block in the afternoon um, and my afternoon painting block got interrupted uh, when I went to when sort of out of nowhere I decided to go to a rally uh, which I didn't know about earlier on that day so that was a big block of time which sort of just got taken out of my day but I was surprised at how well I was able to fluidly respond to that and after I got back from that I just worked later into the into the night so I was I was working until like 10 30 or 11 even though the structure of my day was altered I still had approximately the same time chunks yeah that's good how different do you think this is from an average day for you I think that this day the main difference was the fact that I had so much to do I, I think I do better under pressure than when I have quote-unquote free time or I think I have free time or I think that it's an easy day like yesterday I had two or three things that I know, knew I had to get done and sure there was a bunch of other stuff that I knew I had to do at some point but I kind of was lazy at times because I thought I had a lot of time to spare and so I think that as long as I'm engaged and busy I think I can work really effectively like I did that day but I need to make sure that even when I'm less busy I'm able to almost put pressure on myself to make sure that I can still get those things done yeah I had a less structured day and I probably will have mainly less structured days for a long time because just sort of, of the nature of what I'm doing I don't have strict deadlines. Um, and I think I actually managed that pretty well uh, on this day. Like when I just didn't have anything to do, I started doing prep work. And during that time, I was trying to think of how to spend my working time. Whereas normally, uh, I would just go on Instagram uh, and, and wait for, for inspiration or just trying to figure out something to do. I would go on Instagram trying to figure out something to do. But of course, mainly just getting sucked into the black hole that is Instagram. Yeah, I think that that prep time that you have is very valuable because it is something that you can do with your hands that is somewhat related to the next task that is like painting for you. And like, I'm just trying to think personally, like things that are menial enough that it's not a burden to start doing or very difficult to start doing, but at least leads to the next that next task, which I think is really cool to have. I know with my music, I think I have something similar where if I 
just pick up my guitar. I just have a guitar always next to me where I work. And I know that if I can just pick it up and just mess around with it, I will have the, it's weird to say energy, but the energy to like come down and like do something valuable with it that I can show for. Like yesterday I was kind of lazy and I was like, oh, I have to come all the way down and set everything up to like start recording. But once I like started messing around with my guitar, I was able to get myself down and it was really good. Yeah. But I think finding those intermediary steps is important, I think, to get started with like, the real work. I think one of the most important lessons I've learned from figuring out how to convince myself to paint every day and convince myself to draw every day is that motivation and action aren't like a one-way street. Motivation isn't the thing which allows you to start painting or to start playing guitar. Like you have to start playing guitar and then motivation comes, which makes you want to play guitar more. So those moments when I feel like I'm at a creative block, even though my brain is telling me the solution or the only possible option is just to not do anything, I know that that is the wrong option and I have to just put myself out there and start doing the work and eventually motivation will sort of come out of that creative inertia that I've built up. Okay, I've been thinking about something a lot this week and this is kind of a weird question and it's going to sound dark when I say it, but I think it's an interesting question. I don't think I'm prepared, but bring it on. What do you think... How long do you think humanity is going to exist? When you said it was dark and deep, I... Like, we're at an interesting point in human history where we now possess the tools with which we could wipe ourselves off the planet. And, like, pretty much only since 1945, or even later from that. So the past 70 years, say, we've had the ability to destroy ourselves... And whenever I look back at history, it's always kind of a miracle that it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So that brings me back to my original question. How long? What's your best estimate for when humanity maybe not becomes extinct, but stops being the, the dominant force on the planet, the dominant biological force on the planet? I think that... There have been there has been a trend in the past not even a hundred years towards preservation. Like if we look back two hundred, three hundred years, there was the Industrial Revolution and then we had I'm skipping a bunch, but like we had the Depression, World Wars, and I'm just Yeah, you skipped a this couple is just things. useful to make my point. Yeah, I know. Um, but I think these events are kind of when we reached, at least in the Western world, a, a pretty low low um, in terms of like care for not only our planet, but also just humanity in general. And I think that in the past 80, maybe 70 years, a lot of that has been pushing back towards a, or maybe just forging a new trail towards a good direction um like in terms of how conscious we are of the environment and of and i think we're on the way to becoming more conscious of 
people and humans around us. So I think that we're on a relatively good trajectory. And I'd make the argument that we are going to survive for many years till some catastrophic, unexpected thing happens. That I think that we're going towards the good. So you're you're pretty optimistic. Yeah. I like to be optimistic. I'm not. I think that Okay, what is your what is your Okay, um, first off, you did not give me a year. Doomsday. I want a year. A year? Wow. I think that in the next 400 years something crazy enough will happen that it would cause enough strife. Like I I think that I take that back. I I have <laughs> absolutely no clue. Um, I'll let you go first so I can think about this. What's your year? Have you heard of the Doomsday Clock? So the Doomsday Clock is a symbol used by the by the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. It started in 1947, and over the years, they have used the clock to illustrate the threat of, at first, nuclear Armageddon, and in more recent years, just any doomsday event uh, for the human race. So at first, it was designed very specifically to reflect uh, different powers in, in the world who had nuclear weapons. So when just the United States had nuclear weapons, they said it, we were seven minutes away from, from midnight, which represented Armageddon or Doomsday. A couple of years later, when the Soviets uh, demonstrated their own atomic weapon, we came two minutes till Doomsday. And then as Soviet-U.S. tensions relieved in the 60s, we got back to 12 minutes before Doomsday. Um, and it's been going up and down ever since. But recently, I think I think right now we're at two minutes and thirty seconds. A hundred seconds, which is one thirty, right? Oh, are we at one hundred seconds? One forty, yeah. So it's a minute forty seconds. Okay, um, so we're at a minute and forty seconds away from midnight, and I don't. It's important to say that time on this clock is not linear, and it doesn't represent an inexorable march towards doomsday. It goes forwards and backwards uh, around the clock to to demonstrate how far we are away from something. So, like I said, as things got better, we started to move the clock backwards, and as things get worse, according to the Board of Atomic Scientists, it moves closer to midnight. But looking at that clock and looking at the chart of how many minutes it was till midnight over time, there are so many instances that are like a near miss to just complete catastrophe. And in more recent years, as they've moved away from purely atomic concerns, and now they're starting to look at things like climate change and political rhetoric. And I think, well, you're right that there is a, a movement that is starting to see technology as something which can be used to preserve nature as opposed to sort of the old dualistic view between science and nature. 
I still think that we are facing some of the largest problems that societies of this scale have ever seen. The problem of climate change is something which is going is is already happening and it is being denied and it seems like looking at the evidence that we are in some cases we're too late to to save everybody from climate change we're too late to halt climate change and even though that evidence is so compelling and so catastrophic people are still denying it either out of malicious intent or a lack of caring about scientific expertise and a lack of faith in scientific expertise. And it's just hard not to be pessimistic. The other thing is that it's not just intentional Armageddon. I think our raw amount of power just has gone up exponentially in the past 100 and 200 years that, like, there were scientists who a couple of years ago who accidentally created a flu virus and they realized that if it got out it would be the kind of flu virus which would decimate the world's population and luckily they were intelligent enough to stop uh, they were intelligent enough to kill that virus no it's not coronavirus <laughs> Emmanuel is making a face I would just like to be clear that that is not coronavirus this was a while ago and coronavirus has not yet decimated the population yet yeah again i'm pessimistic i know calvin i'm sorry have faith in what yeah not humanity i guess we gotta <laughs> stick with thought on that one um but i think that though we are closer than ever i think if we don't have an attitude that reflects optimism, I think it's difficult to go on. Like, I think we need to explore ways and new ways that we haven't thought about in order to preserve humanity. That sounds so fake and grand. I mean, essentially, your argument that you just made in favor of optimism was that optimism is not correct, but it's useful. Is, is kind of what I heard you say, that you need to be optimistic in order to have a chance. Yeah, and I think that that's my general reason for being optimistic when I am, that if, if we lose hope that there's even less of a chance of making it anywhere. So I think that whether it's the world and climate change or it's like biking up a hill, I think if you don't have optimism that there's another the other there's the other side and you can make it then I think you won't find creative and different and new ways to solve it I think that pessimism often like snuffs out creativity like we never thought that we could wait let me think of an example <laughs> yeah you can't think of anything could you there has to be something that we have explored I I'm I'm kind of the moon. What? The moon. Ah yes, thank you, Calvin. Solar power. Perfect. Yeah. No, this is this is like my favorite example. If JFK didn't say that we'd be on the moon, in what was it? A ye like by the end of the decade or something, he said. Um, 
I don't think we could have been on the moon by the end of the decade. I think that if we don't reach for crazy, weird things like that, we're never going to make it. And so while I think that it is important and it's a wake-up call that we're 100 seconds away from doomsday or whatever, in order to go back and be 10 minutes away from doomsday, we need to approach the problem knowing that it's possible and knowing that we can go back and even if we don't know hope. But you're assuming that people are approaching the problem, which it's just clear with things like climate change or political polarization. People just are not approaching the problem. I will say with the problem of climate change, I think that the people... This is not to say that like it, it's taken care of, but I think that... Oh, boy. I think that the people who talk about working on climate change aren't the ones who actually need to or who will make the difference like the politicians are the people who are talking about working on climate change but what do you think the free market is just going to solve climate no, change no i don't think that no i <laughs> laissez faire um no <laughs> get out <laughs> i think that I think the free market will always be incentivized towards a short-term view of economics and of just living in this world. And for something like climate change, you can't have that view. So I think either we need to radically change our economic policies, which probably isn't going to happen, or we need to institute something like a carbon tax that would create these incentives within a regulated free market. So I I I disagree in in short. I think the politicians are the only people who can create an end or start or move the needle towards mitigating the effects of climate change because only nation states have the amount of power to set those to implement the kinds of changes we need. Yeah, I, I think I, I see where you're coming from. I think that there's, it's a two-pronged battle. I think that it's first, we need to stop negatively affecting the climate. And I think that the politicians um, have a lot to do in that area. But also there's th the push to create new ways to do the things that we're doing now. And I think that technology is advancing at a rate where we can do it. But I think, I guess you're right, that we need the politicians to join that. I think that the people who see the problem are in the place of research and technology and they're helping solve problems that we will have as soon as we start the switch away from carbon. And, and I think that you're right, policy does have a lot to do with that. So I, I think that what I was trying to say is that if we can start our move away from, say, um, like coal plants, I think there's enough drive and technology to aid in that and we're able to switch away so you're saying it's technically possible yeah 
I I agree that it's I'm not a person who is hopeless about the future. I think I'm generally optimistic despite what the connotations of that question. But I think it's also important to recognize that things aren't going to sort themselves out and that we have a ridiculous amount of power and we need to be very careful about how we're using it. And I, I don't think our political systems are, are very good at regulating power. Do you want to talk about something more fun? Guess what? What? I got my deferment request accepted. <gasps> Yay! Congratulations, Calvin. When was this? This was like June 8th. And I forgot to talk about it in our last podcast. You're kidding. I, we just got so into it. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. I still haven't heard back from Berkeley. I think I'm, I'm doing what you were doing with checking your uh, deferral email. I'm checking every other hour. If oh. I... It's like maybe I searched for the wrong thing. Maybe if I search for UC in my email instead of like, but maybe I spelt it wrong. Maybe like, yeah. How does that work? I've never understood the waitlist thing. So I don't completely understand how this stays within ethical codes or anything because I did give my what is it what deposit is it? deposit i like i gave i not acceptance what um yeah i just you accepted a letter of you accepted somebody's offer of admission admission yeah i accepted the offer of, of admission at rpi and yet somehow i can go back on that if I get in from a wait list, like that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to accept one and you can just say no. Is that part of the terms when you accepted the RPI wait list or is it something that's not exactly legal, but everybody assumes will happen? You mean the uh, RPI decision? Like, yeah, like you accepted RPIs, but right. in that acceptance, were you... Was there like a clause of that acceptance saying there's a chance that I will go somewhere else? Because at least the the all of the documents I read for Amherst, all those like scary legal things saying you were bound to this decision, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> You're bound to this decision, blah, blah, blah. They were all very clear that once you accept, you should not accept any other offers and... By accepting another offer, you would be put on the bad list, and graduate schools would know to not, re not to reject you, and that kind of thing. Is that the case, really? Yeah. Wow. Or at least but that's I, something I read somewhere. Like I, I do have, I do know of people who have almost went to a undergraduate program, then went somewhere else because they got into a wait list and then went back to the first one for master. So I don't know if they like hmm. blacklist you, 
but I think it is curious as to how that works because like plenty of people get in off of waitlist and on in the waitlist they tell you please accept another offer because we're not guaranteeing you admission so definitely like confirm your place in another college but it's somehow ethical i guess i don't know maybe it's just maybe it's not and it, everyone just does it unethically it's somehow ethical i guess the human the human endeavor is going great <laughs> <laughs> says the man who shot himself in the hand okay okay i just never questioned the fact that wait lists were normal and people got in off of wait lists yeah now you're making me double guess myself I'm sorry maybe, maybe this is i feel like it i bet you're I feel fine like it's fine i bet you're fine well let's let's wait till i get in so we talk about that anyway well i wish you the best of luck thank you for podcasting with me i really I really do like talking to you. For everybody who's listening, uh, you can follow us on Instagram now at Since Graduation, where we have show notes and we have any pictures. Probably pictures of my hand. Oh, yes. If anybody wants to see Emmanuel's hand, which he shot, uh, <laughs> definitely go check out our Instagram. Um, and you can follow me on Instagram at calvin.m.art. And you can follow Emmanuel at emmanuel.david.music but you can go to the since graduation instagram and i will have links to both of our instagrams there thank you for listening and we will see you next time let's roll the outro